Well, welcome again, everyone. So glad you're here to worship with us on this wonderful Resurrection Day. I had many of you gathered uh, with us on Friday night for a Good Friday service. Had a wonderful time just reflecting on the sufferings of Christ and a uh, very encouraging time, somber time. And now this morning to celebrate the resurrection of Christ. The tomb is empty. He's alive. He's risen. It really happened. And we've got a living Savior, and that's fantastic news. Um, if you're a guest, if you're visiting, I know several of you are here because we're going to be baptizing uh, several. So some of you are family and friends coming to observe the baptism. Here's what's going to happen next. I'd like to take some time and open up God's Word and share with you a message from Romans chapter 6. This could take about 40 minutes. And then when I finish this message, we'll, take, we'll close this time, take a short break, and we're going to move the meeting out to the patio uh, where there's a horse trough filled with water, and we're going to start dunking uh, some folks uh, that Jesus has saved, and very excited about that. So that's the plan. Please stick around and join us. Uh, we'll have a little break, like I said, so they can change their clothes, and we'll move out on, onto the patio and celebrate some new birth and some wonderful lives. So pray with me for God's word and for our hearts uh, to receive it. Father in heaven, as we open up the scriptures again this week, uh, as we do each week, Lord, this is really, uh, in a sense, of the most significant thing we can do as we gather together is to open wide our ears and our hearts and say, Lord, speak, speak to us. We look to the Bible, we look to the scriptures as words from your very heart, from your very mouth, words that were breathed out divinely, although written by men over centuries of time. Before that, from that, out of that, you breathed out these inspired words. So give us ears to hear, eyes to see what the Spirit is saying to us this afternoon. Amen. Amen. Well, we're celebrating the resurrection of Jesus, uh, really one of the great, the greatest claim of Christianity, that Jesus actually physically did rise from the dead. In fact, there is no Christianity without this. It is, it is fundamental to what we understand about being a Christian, about Christ. He is risen. And there's so many things about the resurrection that we get taught. There's doctrines that come out of this reality that took place. There's, there's things about the, the goodness of the material world. There's, there's something about what eternity is going to be like, which is good to know. So it's not just spirits sitting on clouds playing harps. It's like, no, we got a, we got a little picture of Jesus resurrected and a little picture of what eternity is going to be like. The, the fact that he was raised from the dead, this, this confirmation and this assurance of our regeneration, of our new birth, and of our justification, all these things the scripture teaches that because he was raised, we can know these things to be true. There's one aspect that I want to focus on this afternoon with you about the resurrection, and that's that the resurrection is a source and a power for us to live a new life a changed life. So we're talking about an event that took place about 2,000 years that has implications, ramifications for you and for me today in this life. Because Jesus was raised from the dead, you and I can live differently today. There is power for a changed life. 
Now, I think everybody understands that being a Christian means you're supposed to be different. Okay? That becoming a Christian changes you in some way. Uh, I think we could all agree it's supposed to make you a better person. You should be better after you come to Christ than you were before. And if somebody stood up and said, yeah, I became a Christian, and I'm no different today than I was then, we'd all think, well, that's an odd testimony. Something doesn't quite make sense about that. Because coming to Jesus, knowing him, receiving him, having the Spirit's work in your heart is meant to change us. And I think everybody agrees, Christian or non-Christian, would agree. That's the concept. You become a Christian for some kind of improvement to your life. You should be better. Now we can discuss how better or how much or to what extent, but I think we would all agree that it's supposed to improve us. But how? How does it change us? How does that change in our lives come about? We're going to be reading in just a couple minutes from Romans chapter 6. It was written by the Apostle Paul. He was called to be, apostle, to be an apostle by Jesus after Jesus died and rose from the dead. And he had this calling to be apostle, and, and he really was, as far as we know historically, one of the main people that articulated this gospel of grace. So Jesus was it, displayed it, lived it, died, rose again. All the gospel components are there. But the Apostle Paul comes along and begins to articulate this concept that the gospel of grace can only be received and it cannot be achieved. It has to be received. It cannot be achieved. This is interesting coming from Paul because he was a really good guy. He was at the top of his game religiously in every aspect. He had everything about being a good religious person. And yet he has an encounter with Jesus and he realizes that everything about his pedigree and his resume, resume had to get set aside. None of it, none of it mattered. In fact, he used an exaggerated statement. He says, I counted all like dung. It was just a pile of manure. It all meant nothing when I come to understand that the grace of God cannot be earned. It has to be received. Well, when he articulated this gospel of grace, he got a lot of pushback. I don't know if you feel the tension of that, but it's very common because it, grow, it goes cross-grain to how we think about coming to God, knowing God, being in a relationship with God, because being a Christian is supposed to make you better, right? So being good should make you a Christian? Paul says, no, actually, quite the opposite. This concept of the grace of God being received and the fact that it cannot be achieved, you cannot earn it, you cannot do good in order to deserve it, not in part, not in, to any extent. It can only be received. And he gets all kinds of pushback, which leads to a couple different errors. One of them is that, okay, well, if I don't have to be good to know God, then that means I could just go on sinning. 
I could just keep doing the bad stuff that I was doing before and I could just keep on sinning. Because if you're telling me it's all of grace and I can't earn it and I can't deserve it, then why not? In fact, the argument was a little bit, uh, the more we sin, the more grace comes. So, hey, it sounds like we should sin all the more because the more we sin, the more grace that comes. Right, Paul? Is that what you're saying? And he refutes that. There is another error on the other side that says, wait a minute, Paul, that can't be right. It doesn't, it doesn't compute. It doesn't, it doesn't meet my sensibilities. You, you've you've got to do something good. You have to be good some way, somehow. I just know there's got to be some aspect that I need to contribute towards this. Even if we talk about a whole bunch of grace, there's got to be something that I put in there myself to finish the deal. Two errors that I want to talk about this morning. What is the right way in between? And it's so important that we get this right. It's so important that we get this right because, listen, if you are stuck in the, well, it's all of grace, so I just keep on sinning. In other words, sin doesn't matter then if it's all of grace. Well, if that's you, if you lean that way, and let's be honest, there's a, there's a little bit of that in all of our hearts that rises up from time to time. It's no big deal. It's not a problem. It's got to be okay. It's all of grace. Keep on living in sin. Well, not only do we have a, a, a terrible testimony at that point to the grace of God, about the grace of God, and about the gospel, but we, we find that we will be living with this sort of internal contradiction. I love Jesus. I know Jesus. He died for my sin, and yet I keep living my life in a way that I know displeases him, that he's called me away from. And she so said, well, but it's all grace, so it's okay. But you keep doing it. All of a sudden, you, there's this dissonance inside your own soul, this contradiction. You, the, the messages don't match. It's not right. And it begins to tear you apart from the, from the inside out. And you'll be one of those people that realize, wow, something's so inconsistent inside. I'm going to have to deconstruct something here. I'm going to have to pull it apart and reanalyze because something's not meshing. Something's not adding up. And your faith is in danger at that point. If you fall on the other side and the other problem where, okay, we, we must be good in some way in order to get something from God category, again, we spoil the testimony of the grace of God. We cloud the actual gospel of grace, but at the same time, internally, the, the dissonance of, but I never can seem to do good enough. I never seem to be quite good enough. And even if you go through a season where you think, okay, I'm feeling pretty good about myself. I've done a few good things. I, I, think, I think it's good. It, it comes to an end, and you realize, ah, when I look inside, I'm just really not that good. And again, you're facing this dissonance, this inconsistency inside your own soul. I'm supposed to earn something, but I realize that I can't. Both errors ruin us on the outside as well as on the inside. The inconsistency between what we confess to believe and what we experience within ourselves and in our lives back us into a corner and press us to rethink something. And unfortunately, we can get caught up in rethinking our faith. But it's good because 
it's an indication that we don't fully understand the gospel of grace. Romans 6 addresses this. So let's turn to Romans chapter 6. We're going to read the first 14 verses together. It addresses this issue and gives us an explanation as to how the gospel of grace actually does change us and bring us into living a new life, or as the text will say, in newness of life. Romans chapter 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. How does the resurrection work to bring us into a newness of life, a different kind of life, a better life, a new life? There are two points that I have for you this afternoon from this text that explain to us how the new life works. And, as, and just to repeat, to say, it's very important that we understand how the new life does because if we don't get this, that means we are stuck in one of those two errors that I mentioned to you. Here's the two points that I have for you. The first thing we have to realize is we have to understand about having a new master. And the second is that we have to understand about having a new identity. The text that I just read to you throws in some slavery terminology so that we should no longer be enslaved to sin, that death no longer has dominion over us. Let not sin reign in your mortal body. Do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness, for sin will have no dominion over you. It's this dominant, it's this slavery, master kind of terminology that, that Paul is laying out. Let me just gather us up here with a good definition, good working definition of sin, because I'm not sure what comes to your mind when I say the word sin. Maybe you're thinking something you did, a costly mistake, 
uh, an addiction that crept into your life. Maybe it's something about you that comes to mind. You're fearful, you're angry, you're judgmental. Maybe it's something in your life that you lack. That's what comes to mind. I lack discipline, I lack courage, I lack empathy. That's the area of sin. When you say sin, those are the things that, that, that come to my mind. God, I just ask you, look, set aside those concepts that you have about you and yourself and personally, and when you hear the word sin, just set those aside and look for a minute with me. In Romans chapter 1, Paul makes this statement. He says, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. In that verse, in that statement, Paul is laying out, in a sense, the sin behind the sin, the sin behind every sin. Every sin starts with the breaking of the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before you. It's a, it's a worship issue. It's about who's really God in your heart, and that's how all sin starts. So when I say sin, sometimes we think about specific things going on or lacking in our lives or things we do we shouldn't do, that sort of thing. But, but hear what the Scripture is saying. Hear where Paul is coming from. He begins with this understanding of what we're talking about when we're talking about sin. We're, we're talking about living life not honoring to God, not, on, not acknowledging God, not giving thanks to God. It's just like I'm living my life isolated from God. And he says that's, that's how it all starts. That's where it all, all the problems come from that. That's the issue at the very beginning. So once we understand that starting point, now we can start talking constructively about sin. And Paul begins to talk about how people are enslaved to sin. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? When we talk about sin, we all think about choosing, choices, my free will. I decide to do this versus that. I chose to sin. I chose this path versus that path. And we think in terms of choosing. But there's a divine perspective. When God begins to talk about sin, he talks in terms of obeying. So we think, I'm choosing. And God looks at us choosing, and that's true. We're making choices. But when God looks at that, and he defines it, and he begins to speak about that, he starts talking in terms of obedience. He says, you're obeying something, someone. That's why you're making the choice that you're making. So we think choice, divine perspective goes beneath the choice, beyond the choice, and begins to say, what I see you choosing, I call obedience. I see you obeying this or obeying that. When he talks about this in terms of obedience, what he's doing is he's identifying the real master. Who, who are you obeying? Not what bad choices are you making. Beyond that, who are you obeying? Who's your master in this situation? You and I have a master. Well, you have a master, and that's what's determining the choices that we make. 
We don't just pick at random. There's something beneath the choice driving us. We have some kind of thing going on beneath the choices. It's about our desires, our demands, our needs, our expectations, our disappointments. And when you think in terms of those categories, then you'll begin to see the divine perspective of slavery and obedience and having a master. Then your eyes begin to open and you begin to realize, oh, God sees my life a little bit differently than I do. The resurrection of Christ changes this. What we read in the text is that because of the resurrection, the bondage to sin is broken. Sin as a master is being defeated. Verse 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. The one who dies is free. Think of somebody who's suffering terribly, fatally, and they die. And what comes to mind? They're not suffering anymore. They are free from their suffering. Because of the resurrection, our new master is being revealed. Christ comes up out of that tomb as our new master. The king who entered Jerusalem one week prior, riding in on that donkey, worshipped, heralded, looked to as the sent king from above to come and take his reign and his rulership suffers terribly through that week, culminating in his death on the cross on Friday afternoon. But then Sunday morning comes, and on Sunday morning, he's raised from the dead. And now we see the real king, the true king, as he is. Philippians chapter 2 says this, Therefore God has highly exalted him, and bestowed on him a name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth, under the earth, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now he's exalted, crucified, dead, buried, raised again, now exalted. Now he has his position. Now he's the master of it all. He's the Lord over it all. Conquered death. Everything. Friends, what I'm trying to help us with is in our battle of trusting God, alongside our battle with sin in our own hearts and battle with the sins of those around us, in that whole journey and all the complexities of that the real keys to a changed life, to living a new life, start with acknowledging a new master. Have you ever just tried to change yourself? Got a bad habit, got a sinful habit. I'm going to lick this thing. I'm going to do it. I'm, I, 
I'm going to try this. I'm going to try that. And you find yourself frustrated. And here the word of God comes in and says, look, my friend, this is where it starts. This is how real change takes place. You had an old master. Here's your new one. Now listen, you no longer have to be enslaved to this one. This is the one I'm calling you to follow. Resurrection power works for newness of life by giving us a new master. Second point, a new identity. Our new life emerges out of a new identity. Oh, talk about identity in the day and time that we live. So much is about identity. My identity, your identity has become a legal issue. If you don't cooperate with me on what I say about my identity, you could go to jail. Oh, how we view identity so differently today. What a unique time we live in. Carl Truman wrote a fascinating and wonderful, excellent book recently called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. He introduces the book with this statement. He says, the origins of the book lie in my curiosity about how and why a particular statement has come to be regarded as coherent and meaningful. I am a woman trapped in a man's body. He's saying, I'm curious as to why everyone completely understands that statement. No, whatever you agree, disagree, that's not his point. The point is you can say that today to anybody and everybody will smile and us. I know exactly what you're talking about. I know what that statement means. And he's just saying, any other time in history, you make a statement like that, and everybody would like, what did you just say? That makes absolutely no sense to me. But today, it makes sense. His answer is that we cannot properly understand this until it is set within the context of a much broader transformation in how society understands the nature of human selfhood okay our identity how you understand yourself your identity how you define yourself that's the broader context and that's what his book is about he says we're talking about how we understand ourselves what our purpose in life is what constitutes a good life how do i understand myself alongside of the world around me and primarily what is it that will bring about my own happiness for answers to these questions, we've been trained to look inside ourselves, our inner psychology, our feelings, our intuitions, and the ability to disregard the outside voices and quiet them enough to hear the voices within. So shut down the voices outside telling you who you are. I was re reflecting on the song from Aladdin about speechless. I don't know if you're familiar with the song. This is the whole thing. Do not let society tell you who you are, who you can be. Shut out, quiet those voices so you can look inside and discover your true identity. There are other times in history when your family, your society, your community speak into your identity far more than they do today. Today, the goal is to tell everybody to quiet down so that I have enough quietness to discover who I am. We tend to live out of a 
I am what I will. I am what I can do. I am what I own. I am what I feel. And we're striving for understanding our own identity. If you're caught in that, oh, a wonderful resource, uh, a man by the name of Dick Keyes wrote a wonderful book called Beyond Identity, subtitled Finding Yourself in the Image and Character of God. And he says the challenge of this looking inside yourself so deeply in order to discover yourself is that he says the images you have of yourself are self-contradictory and disorganized, an ever-shifting collage. But the very diversity of these images creates a need to find some kind of coherence among them. In, in other words, friends, if you look deep inside yourself, you're going to discover such a disorganized mess in there, you're not going to be able to come up with some coherent sense of who you are. It's ever-changing. It's always confusing. It's always contradicting yesterday and then tomorrow. It's just it's so difficult to untangle it all. And so you find yourself stuck in this misery and mystery. Dick Keyes goes on to write, he says, we cannot exaggerate the psychological pain in a disintegrated sense of identity. The questions and doubts are not remote but are urgent. We try to fix this. You can go home tonight. Something can set you off when you get home from church and you flare up in a fit of rage and you bark out something and then you wake up Monday morning and you turn to others in the household and say, I'm sorry, I just wasn't myself last night. I wasn't myself. In other words, I have a concept of who I am. <laughs> That's not it. But the problem is you have to come to terms with the fact that it was you <laughs> who did it. That actually came out of your mouth. It was you. So we're trying to fix the contradictory stuff that's going on inside of us. And you realize, if you're honest with yourself, it's a mess in there. What does work, friends, is when you and I find ourselves in the one who created us. So the culture right now says, don't let the culture tell you who you are. Don't let your family tell you who you are. Don't let society tell you who you are. Find out for yourself. What I'm saying is neither options are great. One option is right. You can only truly discover who you are by going to the one who created you looking to the one who created us, who knows us, who loves us, who is unusually committed to our well-being. It's not only the wisest place to look for our identity, it's the one place it can be found. It's the one direction that will not lead you on a wild goose chase about who you are. C.S. Lewis wrote this. He says, a human creature revolting against its creator is like the scent of a flower trying to destroy the flower. It is revolting against the very source of its power, including the power to revolt. 
trying to discover who you are apart from the one who made you, who loves you, who cares for you, who is out for your well-being, who laid out a plan to rescue you and save you. Trying to discover yourself apart from that is futile. You will be stuck on an endless journey to nowhere. Answer, our identity is found in being united to Christ. Our text uses that phrase over and over again. Don't you know? You're, you're, you're asking this question, about should we just go on sinning? Oh, oh, how could you say that? Don't you know that you've been united to Christ? Don't you know that you've been united with him in his death and in his burial and in his resurrection? That word, being united to, it's kind of a botanical term about being grafted in or planted together. Engrafted into one, you've been like united to Christ like that, like engrafting a branch into a, another branch, like put together so that the source of life is, is feeding both, the common source of nourishment in life. Friends, the gospel is you and I being invited to being united to Christ in his death and in his life. How does that work? It's like a storybook wedding where the man, he's the man, he's Mr. Right. He, he has it all. He's a good man. He's a rich man. He has the best reputation. He's talented. He's good looking. Most of all, he loves you. He loves you to the point of self-sacrifice, that kind of love. He's so for you. And that guy comes to you and says, will you be mine? Friends, this is no storybook wedding at all. We're talking about Jesus coming to us and saying, will you be mine? Will you be united to me? You gain everything by saying yes. The storybook picture is a huge contrast. You have nothing. He has everything. And yet somehow he eyes you and says, will you? Will you be mine? That's the gospel invitation to us. And what happens when you say, yes, I will? Well, at that moment, you get a new name. You gain a new identity. You are then united with him, and your name changes. 
your identity, your status, everything about you changes at that moment. You are now, thereby, united to him. I think it's pretty good news. I think the gospel invitation is quite good news. And being united to Christ, now think back to the storybook scene and the woman who is now the wife, she starts a new life, new identity. And she begins to walk in newness of life. Does she do it perfectly? No. Is there some struggles? Yes. But what makes the difference? She has a new identity. And friends, that's precisely what it means to become a Christian. It's like getting married to Jesus. And you and I take on a new identity. So there's two things. How does resurrection power work for a new kind of life? There's two concepts that have to be ingrained in our thinking that we have to meditate on and focus on and realize every day. Oh, I have a new master. I no longer live for the old one. He's been defeated. He's dead. I live as if he's dead. I recognize him being dead, and I live now for my new master. Now you're starting to tap into some real power in your life over sin. And secondly, your identity has been changed. You're no longer who you once were. You have been made new. You have been brought in. You now have a new name, a new identity. Are you changing? Are you growing? Is there a struggle there? These things that I'm talking to you about are the starting point for change in your life. This is like how it happens, how you're able to do it by those two concepts, a new master, new identity. And you and I slip up and say, oh, that was the old master. It was my old identity. And then we come back and we have this advocate with the Father who showers us with forgiveness. It says, okay, you lost that one. We're back on track. Who are you? Who am I? You're my master now. Who are you? I'm yours. New master, new identity. What we're going to do next is we're going to baptize some people. And this is just a, I, you know, the more I think about baptism, the more phenomenal I realize what, a, what an ingenious sacrament the Lord's given us to display all these things that we've been talking about for the last 30, 40 minutes. We've got seven people that we are going to dunk underwater. And when we put them underwater, it's like, okay, my friend, this is acknowledging something that God by his spirit has done in your life. We're going to put you down under the water because you died with Christ. 
underwater, no air, can't breathe, you're dead. That was Friday. Christ died. But on Sunday morning, Christ rose. So, looking at him under the water, we're going to take him back up. Up out of the water. Because you were dead with Christ. You get buried with Christ. But now you get raised with Christ. They're going into that water to die. And they're coming out of that water to live new. New life. Walking in newness of life. What tremendous picture. And what an even more tremendous reality. To have to be the case for your life. And for mine. Okay, I think what we're going to do is we're going to break here. I would just like to pray for us. And we're going, to, we're going to need a few minutes because we've got seven people that we're going to baptize. And it's going to take place out back through the doors. Find your way to the back patio. We've got a tank there uh, ready for this. I think some folks might need a few minutes to change their clothes and get ready for that. So kind of find your way over there. Let me pray. And we'll meet you in five to ten minutes back on the patio. And then we'll start this beautiful sacrament called baptism. Father, thank you for gathering us, for speaking to us. Thank you for words, Lord, that are words of life that change us. Oh, Lord, for for every Christian that, that is here in the room saying, oh, Lord, how do we live this new life in Christ? Lord, pray that these words were encouraging and helpful. As, Lord, we, we recognize Oh, you are our new master and a very good master at that. And we love belonging to you and living for you and serving you. That's our greatest joy. And you've made us new. Lord, you've given us really a new name. You've adopted us into a new household. Everything is new. All the old, Lord, which was so destructive and so hurtful. You've given us something altogether new. And we love you for that, which causes us to want to live for you and enjoy you forever. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, we'll meet you on the patio in a few minutes.